Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Are you ready for the word? Before we get into it, I want to thank Elmore and Van and Lawrence and Chris and and Armin. Where is Armin? Over there. Can we put our hands together for all the hard work for these guys? If I could summarize this series in one word, it would be discipleship. And we've been covering three areas important to discipleship. The first is to follow Jesus. The next is to fish for men and then to fellowship with other believers. And in each of those categories, we talked about spiritual disciplines and essential doctrines and life change when it comes to following Jesus. And then in the area of fishing for men, we talked about the importance of understanding the gospel and preaching the gospel and making disciples. Now we are in part three. We're coming to the end of this series. And this is about fellowshipping with others. Last week, Armin talked about church community. And today our topic is relational unity. And then for next week, I'll leave that a mystery. Be sure to be here. It's going to be good as Chris Brown brings the word. <clears throat> so having said that, I want to pray in a moment. But before I do, just to share a personal experience in preparing this message Uh, This was a very difficult message for me to prepare. I hit a block. And I had this personal conviction that before I speak any message, I need to be living it myself. I mean, we we can only lead people as far as we ourselves have gone, right? And I just, I had this block because I knew that the message that I was speaking, I wasn't living, not yet. And I needed to make some breakthrough. You know, God is faithful that if you will put yourself under the authority of his word and and under him and pray and say, God, do a work, um, he will. That finally came yesterday morning. (laughs) Thank God it did. But um, I just want to share that with you as we pray that some of the things I'm going to be sharing are part of some of the process that I had to go through in working through this passage that we're going to read together. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing gift of life. Lord, thank you that you have redeemed it and you are redeeming it. You're redeeming us. Lord, you're restoring us to your original design of the way you intended life to be. And I thank you, God, that your word is challenging. Lord, if it was just the writing of another man's thoughts, Um, It would not have the power. But Lord, when we come under your word, there's a power to challenge us and to transform us. And I thank you that you're faithful to make it alive and real in each one of us. And so, Lord, I pray that for each one of my brothers and sisters here today, that as we look into your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would touch us, and that we would not be the same. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, our word for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. 
For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. As we consider this passage, if you were to read this passage all by itself, it could come across as another list of do's and don'ts. Another list of qualities to develop in order to become a good person. We should be harmonious. We should be sympathetic. We should be brotherly and kind-hearted and humble. And those are great goals, aren't they? But what happens when we compare all of those with our real life? Because in real life, we get hurt. And then we get distant from the people who hurt us. And so what's the effect when I compare my responses with the expectation that I'm supposed to be in harmony? Well, we can be discouraged because I can't seem to live up to what a good Christian is supposed to look like. I may put on the appearance that everything is okay on the outside, but on the inside, I may be hurting because my spouse and I are not getting along or my parent and I are not seeing eye to eye. Or somebody hurt me. We pretend things are okay on the outside, but in our hearts, we're not at peace. And all of these things are a typical result of religion. Religion is a system of do's and don'ts that feels heavy. It's not life-giving. There's no flow from the Father heart of God. And all that can happen when we read a passage like this out of context. At the end of the day, context rules. And so if you would take some time, and I want to encourage you to do this, read all of 1 Peter. We're just looking at two verses today, but you need to read all of 1 Peter. And take some time to really hear what God is saying in the first part of Peter's letter, because we're jumping in toward the end of it. And you will find amazing revelations of God's goodness that will just blow your mind. The book of 1 Peter has two major themes. They are two very important realities. And the first reality is this. When you invited God into your life, he gave you, he gave you a new identity. He literally changed you. Or a better word is, he transformed you from the inside. You became a new creation. Everybody knows that to become a father biologically, a man plants a seed within a woman and the result is a new life. And at the point of conception, the DNA package is complete. You have everything, literally everything, that you need for the next 60 to 100 years. It's all there in the beginning. Now, you didn't know that in the beginning, I mean, who remembers the day they were born? Nobody, right? But you know it happened. In the same way, when you were born again, God the Father puts the seed of the Holy Spirit within you, and your spiritual DNA package is complete. And you have everything that you need for all of eternity. This is what God reveals in the letter of 1 Peter. A baby doesn't know that one day it will talk and walk and run. In the same way, we don't know all that God has given us to live above and beyond who we are now. So Peter uses the first half of this letter to tell us. 
And I encourage you to read it and to study it. Here's what God says about us. I made a list to summarize the first half of Peter's, le- Peter's letter. Keep this in mind that he's writing to Christians, those who have received Christ. This is what he says about us. You are known. Think about that for a moment. You are known. Just let that sink in. Everything about you, your past and your future. Everything about your personality, your strengths, who you are. You're known. You're chosen. This one will really stretch you. He says you're holy. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. And that was given to us. His holiness was given to us as a free gift by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he says you're cleansed and you're born again. This one will stretch you and you're hopeful. And you're protected. How many of you feel protected? Doesn't this challenge our perception to say these things are true of us? Doesn't that challenge your thinking? You say to yourself, <laughs> Pastor Mark, I can tell you, I, for sure I can tell you, that's not my life. Well, I invite you to reconsider. Which one is real? Your perception or the Bible? Could your perception be like the baby who thinks to himself or herself, I can't walk, I can't run? I mean, the baby doesn't have a clue what he or she is created to do. So let God's word stretch your imagination even more. This verse that we've been reading says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And I present to you that this is not a standard to live up to. This is God's heart toward you. This describes God and how he feels and responds and acts toward you. And because God dwells within you and he's given you his nature, then this is who you are. This is not a list of qualities to develop. This is a description of God's gift to you. Now, remember, we have to read this in the context of what Peter said earlier. If you read it by itself, it comes across a whole different way. You may not feel like this at the moment. But then again, I mean, who feels the future before they get there? Now, I remember the first time I rode a bike and just the wonderful feeling it was to be able to balance and to roll freely. I was like, wow, this is so cool. But, you know, I didn't know what that was going to feel like before I did it. You can't base your future on the present. And this is why parents encourage their kids to keep going. Parents know that their kids can crawl and walk and run and talk and eventually ride a bike. And Peter is doing the same thing for us. This is the first theme of Peter's letter. This is who you are and who you will be as a growing child of God. In the second half of Peter's letter, he simply says, since this is who you are, then this is what your life should look like. So here's the question. 
if relational harmony is the natural result of my new life in Christ, then why is there so much disharmony? Why is there disharmony between husbands and wives? Why is there a disharmony between Democrats and Republicans? Why is there a disharmony between employers and employees? Why is there disharmony between Christians? You know, if we're going to experience relational harmony, then we need to overcome obstacles. And there are many, but I'm just going to highlight two of them today. One is obvious and the other is not. So I'll briefly cover the obvious first. We understand disharmony in the world, right? I mean, we understand sin and Satan are in the world system and even in our physical body. Uh, Romans 7.23, Paul said, Sin is present in the members of my physical body. That's why we have that struggle between our spirit in us that's renewed, but the, 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 the fleshly nature the sin in the body is in conflict with us. That's why one day the body will die, but the spirit will go to be with God. Then later you're going to get a new body that has no sin. It's going to be good. But that's why there's disharmony in the world. We know that the result of sin is arguing and division, right? The very opposite of unity. So, next slide. How do we overcome relational unity? How do we How do we overcome the obstacles to relational unity? Well, number one, we need a revelation from God about our sin. Because many times we just don't know, right? We don't see it. Other people might see it, but we don't. It's kind of like bad breath. I mean, everybody else knows you got it, but you don't. Okay, but when God reveals it to you that there is a problem here in this certain area of life, then we need to repent. We need to turn away from it and turn toward God. And we need to receive a revelation from God. Now, primarily through the Bible, although God can use other methods to reveal truth to us, but primarily through the Bible, we need a revelation about what God has done for us. We need a revelation about our new nature in Christ. You can hear me talk about it, and you can understand it with your mind. But until God reveals it to the innermost part of your being, we really don't get it. God has to reveal that to us. And then once he does, if he reveals to you about who, what your identity is in Christ, then you simply need to resolve in your heart that it's true and you need to live in it by faith. That's that step of faith of living in the truth of what God says versus my old perceptions. Now, Jesus is very clear on the topic of unity. He said, Father, may they be one just as you and I are one. Jesus is all about unity. Now, I want to contrast that with the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, people had gotten together and they were going to build a tower to the sky. The Lord was watching and he said, you know, there's nothing they're not able to do when they have unity. And so he disorganized them by causing them to speak in different languages because they were going to glorify and honor themselves. But in the new kingdom, in God's kingdom, God desires unity to bring glory to him. And it is amazing what we are able to do together when there's unity. 
Usually we overestimate what we can do alone and we underestimate what we can do together. Jesus is all about unity. Now, let me clarify what Jesus meant about being one. He said, Father, may they be one just as you and I are one. What did that mean? Well, to clarify, it helps to use the term relational unity. And that's different from ideological unity. You know, we can all have the same belief about the Bible and about Jesus, but the real question is this. Do we get along? Paul said, if I possess all knowledge, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the perfect example of relational unity. Relational unity is really a description of God's heart. There's no generation gap in the Trinity. The Father and the Son are working together. Jesus said, I can only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus joins his Father. They're working together. And this is the template for fathers and children. On this Father's Day, let's consider relational unity at home. This leads me to the second obstacle of unity. The hallmark of the kingdom of God is honor. The hallmark of the kingdom of darkness is dishonor. Our tablets, our cell phones, our computers, our TVs are filled with a steady stream of dishonor. Hollywood starts with children and goes up from there. You know, the next time you're watching worldly programming, just close your eyes for a moment and listen to the dialogue. Listen to the tone. Listen to the attitude. And you can hear it. You can hear the dishonor that's just spewing from the media. Some of us have been watching it so long, we could be desensitized. We don't even realize it anymore. But it's there. The second obstacle to relational unity is dishonor. Dishonor is affecting us in many ways. And I'm going to highlight just two of them. Number one, older people do not fully appreciate, do not fully value younger people. And secondly, younger people do not fully appreciate and do not value older people. Dishonor is affecting us in many ways. In order to experience relational unity, we need to see each other in a different light. We need to see each other as more important than ourselves. You know, when my daughter was 14 years old, Um, the Lord impressed upon my heart that I needed to formally declare her as an adult. And um, I was aware that in some cultures, they actually have kind of a rite of passage. They have a ceremony that they go through to acknowledge adulthood. And, you know, in American culture, Western culture, we don't really have that. Uh, The best that we do is maybe legally when they turn 18 or go off to college, and it's kind of assumed But there's no real endorsement or stamp from parents about that rite of passage. I felt like the Lord was impressing me to do something like that. And so, um, actually, he was impressing me for quite a long time. I think three months went by. He just kept saying over and over, you need to do this, you need to do this. And finally, I thought, okay, I know that's God, because it's not going away. 
So I made a reservation down at Santa Fe on the bay, sunset, beautiful beach, had dinner, invited her best friend, having an enjoyable time. And then afterward, I said, the reason I invited you here is because I feel like the Lord has impressed me that he wants me to acknowledge and to validate and to um, just bless you as an adult. And I began to explain that with that comes certain responsibilities and certain privileges. And her best friend leaned over and said, so what are the privileges? <laughs> they wanted the car key. <laughs> you know, and that was a good experience. But a year later, I looked back on that and I realized God did not have me do that for my daughter. God had me do that for Terry and I so that we would see her differently and that we would treat her differently. Because up until then, we were treating her as a child. So parents, dads, we need to usher our children into adulthood. That's part of our role. It's honoring them. And here's a tip that will help. You will have a better experience of ushering your kids into adulthood if you remove the word teenager from your vocabulary. Remove it completely. Every culture needs to go through the filter and the grid of God's word. Sometimes we think culture is those ancient things, ancient Chamorros and ancient Hawaiians. We have a modern day culture. And our culture today, well, let me put it this way. Did you know that before 1960, the term teenager did not exist? You won't find it in a dictionary before 1960. In today's society, being a teenager is synonymous with delayed responsibility. My grandparents got married. They were both 14 years old. Does that sound strange to you? And we have changed. Today, we would not even consider that. You're like, no way. <laughs> Am I going to let my daughter get married at 14 years old? over my dead body. <laughs> you see how much we've changed? Part of the reason is mandatory education up through high school. You see, for thousands of years, prior to modern-day education, most people started working at around 14 years old. Consider this. At 12 years old, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, and when it was over, his parents left with the entire band of family and friends. A couple days into the trip, they realized Jesus is not in the group. So mom and dad head back to Jerusalem, and they're freaking out because there's no cell phone. And they're looking all over the city for him. They go, to the, they go to the waterfront, they go to the mall, they go to the video store. Finally, they go to the church, and there he is talking to the priests. And mom is freaking out. I could just imagine Mary grabbing him by the shoulder. Son, why did you do this to us? Not knowing if he was alive or dead. And he says, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? At 12 years old, Jesus was ready to be about his father's business. But his parents were not ready. And the Lord had Terry and I do that little ceremony with my daughter because we are the ones that needed to change wasn't our kids. Our kids want to grow up. They, you know, the number one saying I heard over and over in my house, even when my kids were this high, I can do it myself, dad. I'm like, okay, okay, do it yourself. 
You know, our kids don't want to be fixed. They want to be heard. They want to be validated. They want to be understood. They want to be respected. And so here's the point. The biblical blueprint for human development goes from childhood to young adulthood. There is no such thing as prolonged adolescence, which is an extended vacation from responsibility. When we treat young adults like responsible people, they feel respected and they feel valued. If you're a younger person, notice how Jesus responded to his parents when they found him in the temple. It says he honored them by going home with them. And the very next verse says Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Because he honored his parents, he grew in wisdom and in stature. As we come to a close, I want us to remember this. Whether you're young or old, relational unity is the result of your new life in Christ.